Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ online at RadioNorthland.org. And you can check out the Wrestling Memories episodes not only live, but you can go to our website, RadioNorthland.org, and listen to past episodes. If you missed this episode live today, you can check it out in the archives. Glenn Broggett, along with the Grizzle vet Mike McCurdy down there in the great state of Texas. Mike, it's so nice to have you back in the rotation for this week's edition of Wrestling Memories. As always, man, I'm always glad to be here. You know, I always enjoy uh, talking some wrestling memories with all of our guests and you as well. So I think we got another great guest this week. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Mike, this is uh, one that uh, you were able to uh, to book uh, for the program. And we're going to head to another part of the country. We're going to hit some different geography on this edition of the program. Could you come in and give us the intro to our guest and, and get, get the listeners at home aware of uh, what uh, is going to be going on and what's up today? We are going to be hitting a little bit of a different territory. Obviously, Wrestling Memories goes everywhere. And one of the greatest territories during the day was the Portland Wrestling Territory in the Pacific Northwest. And today's guest is none other than the author of the book, Pacific, excuse me, Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, A History, 1883 to the Present. And the author himself is Stephen Barrier. Stephen, welcome to Wrestling Memories. Well, thank you very much. And by the way, I, I have a bit of a French background. It's Stephen Verrier, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Verrier. Thank you. <laughs> All right, well, Stephen, I'm going to come up. We're going to ask the first question here. I've had a chance to sit back and read your book, and it is a veritable history of the sport. Such a large time frame. And all when did you begin this what first off what made you want to work on a project like this where did you begin and what were you expecting and looking for as a complete project yeah a little bit of my background Uh, i was raised in ontario as i uh, point out in the preface and um, you know i grew up watching gene kaniski in vancouver wrestling in the 60s and 70s it was broadcast all across canada Uh, kaniski of course was a celebrity in canada so I, I knew him as a wrestling character. I grew up as a wrestling fan. I watched uh, wrestling from Minnesota, from you know every place I could get it from. So I, I came at this as a fan. Uh, over the years, I've lived in quite a few places, but I, I've been based in the Northwest just for four years. We came up to Washington uh, early in 2014. Um, and yeah, I don't know exactly what it was. I mean, I had written books in other areas. Uh, I really have no background in the wrestling business except as a fan. But, you know, when I was in Washington, I, I guess I just started talking to people. I, I just realized there was a history that hadn't been told to any great degree. There were some great books. Uh, Vance Nevada's uh, study of wrestling in the Canadian West was just a wonderful resource. But I, I wanted to tie the whole region together on both sides of the border. I just started contacting people. I started reading everything I could. So uh, really it took me much of 2014, 2015. I did have a bit of a background as a fan. I, I, As I say, I followed wrestling for decades. But what I wanted to do was something not entirely for wrestling fans, but to tie the wrestling business in this region to what was going on uh, elsewhere in the region, in other areas of life, and outside the region as well in wrestling and on the outside. So this is not altogether a project just for the wrestling fan, but I wanted it to be a legitimate history of something very interesting. And I think wrestling is just a a great microcosm of cultures and 
uh, a lot of other things, historic eras. So I set out to do it, and, uh, and I've got to say it would have been impossible without a lot of really friendly people in the wrestling business uh, giving me some advice and, uh, and a lot of information. Now, you mentioned Vance Nevada, and obviously he wrote the book about the Canadian wrestling. Vance is a good friend of mine, known him for many years. Who are some of the other um, names that you were able to get in touch with that were able to help you with this book? Well, I, you know, I tried to contact uh, a lot of wrestlers. Uh, I, I do that more so with the Kaniski Project that will follow up this book. But I, I just started looking people up, and that's something you really could not have done nearly as easily even you know 20 years ago. I just, oh, I started going to phone directories, just making calls to everybody I could. Uh, I, I've got to say Don Leo Jonathan is a, an absolute favorite. I mean, an absolute gentleman. Uh, a tremendous resource. I, I quote him more at length in the Kaniski biography since they were, you know, great friends for you know half their lifetimes. But uh, Dean Silverstone was another uh, great resource. I went out to see Dean at his uh, record shop. Uh, he filled me in a lot. Uh, J. Michael Kenyon was a wonderful resource. In fact, I, I knew almost nothing about him until I worked on this project. But you know, I'm sure glad I got in touch. I mean, the wrestling business is going to miss him eternally. I mean, what a source. But um, Vance Nevada was, was wonderful. He answered every question. Matt Farmer. Uh, just people who know a heck of a lot more about the wrestling industry in this part of the world than I did. And just about everybody was very forthcoming. And uh, again, I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for their help. I've been working um, on a project myself. I'm dealing more with the, uh, the world-class territory being that I'm here in Texas. Were there any, one of the things I've found is there were a few people you go to when you go to them as a fan or they don't know who you are They're They're a little, there's some guys out there. They're still protective of the business. They don't want to, you know, talk with the people outside of, you know, their circle. Was that a problem that you came across during your research? Well, no, it wasn't. I mean, I grew up a fan. So when I tried to talk to wrestlers years ago, of course, they they would be in character and sometimes they would, yeah, I'll, I'll put it this way. In the old days, if Abdullah the Butcher came walking toward you, you'd get the heck out of the way. You know, you wouldn't pat him on the back. So it, it was a different era. But from the time I embarked on this project, no, there there was absolutely none of that. I mean, some people perhaps wondered, well, you know, what is your background? Why are you doing this? But, you know, I, I tried to treat everybody with respect, and, and they certainly uh, responded in kind. I didn't have anybody who was not willing to offer something. At least nobody comes to mind. Um, I, I wouldn't say that about some of Gene Kaniski's relatives, you know, as, as far as the other book goes. Some people just did not want to speak about him. Maybe who knows how to fear out of respect. But as far as people in the wrestling business were concerned, no, I, I did not encounter any kayfabe, any uh, resistance at all. And I'm, I'm glad about that. Now, one of the more, to be more specific, your book covers, like your book covers the entire Pacific Northwest area up until now. And a lot, of, I know a lot of the guys that work in the Oregon area now, but one of the most famous territories at that point in time would have been Don Owens and Portland wrestling. And from Don Owens, you, you had guys such as, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Jesse Ventura, Playboy Buddy Rose, Ed Wiskowski, who went on to the AWA in Glens area as Colonel De Beers. So many great names 
came through that specific area. Um, working on this book, was there a part of time where you came to where there was just so much information you had to start to piece together what you could include and not include and possibly even look at maybe doing a second book more specifically on say Portland, because there is just such a colorful history of just Don Owen's territory alone. Well, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot I had to skip over. And, and again, I, I don't want to cater this entirely to the wrestling fan who, you know, does care about every detail perhaps with regard to whatever it might be. I, I was aiming at a more general audience as well. Um, so I, I had to be selective. I, I tried to determine, you know, what, I could not leave out. But the focus is on covering that whole narrative of, of the wrestling industry in Oregon, Washington, and, and British Columbia. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did have to pick and choose. Um, I'm sure there are people I didn't mention that I could have mentioned, but, but also for you know publishers' considerations, I didn't want to make this project too long either. I just wanted to wrap up that story of wrestling in the Pacific Northwest and the Vancouver Territory equally to the Portland Territory. Um, you know, that's a, a large span of time. I wanted to bring it right up to the moment I finished the book, right up to 2017 as it turned out. Um, so, yeah, some things do have to suffer along the way. And, you know, I am hoping that I or somebody will focus on some of the great stories uh, that, that came out of that uh, that region. There are certainly a lot. I've heard of people uh, talking about, uh, you know, writing a, a Buddy Rose uh, biography. There are so many people. You know, I'm doing the Kaniski Project uh, Don Leo Jonathan is equally worthy. I mean, the whole Bellingham, Washington story in the early 1900s is fascinating. You know, that little city was a, a wrestling capital. Um, Farmer Burns and his troop came out to Bellingham. They sort of set up camp there. Uh, they made money over the course of about a year and a half. They really gave a, a kickstart to what was going on in Vancouver. And uh, there are just so many fascinating stories. I mean, Gorgeous George... Uh, really coming of age in Oregon. Um, my goodness, I really wouldn't know where to begin. Uh, the Ed Moretti story to me is one of those uh, things I never would have suspected. Yeah, I watched him wrestle uh, back in the 1980s, but I had no idea just what a broad background he uh, had in the business and, and what he gave to the business as a commissioner in Oregon. Uh, he was involved in promotion. He's a really nice guy, and he's great at telling stories. I mean, uh, there are so many things. And um, I spent the last two years uh, working on the Kaniski Project, and, and absolutely there is a ton more to be covered. Well, I got to mention, too, uh, another a wrestler that was really part of the 1970s uh, in the Portland area uh, who really became a, quite, quite a popular fixture and ended up buying into uh, Don Owen Sports was a gentleman that passed away not that long ago, a few years back, by the name of Dutch Savage. So when Portland wrestling fans uh, of the 70s, later 60s, 70s, 80s remember uh, names, I think the name Dutch Savage definitely uh, is one of those that, that, that really, in the recent you know history of Portland wrestling and this whole big history, it definitely is one of those that, that should be remembered and still is remembered to a degree by fans in that territory. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I grew up watching him as well. He was a big star in Vancouver also during the uh, Kinski era. Loved to watch him. He was a talented, big guy. He spoke well. 
You know, and at that time, I knew nothing about what he did behind the scenes. I mean, same as far as Kaniski went. To me, these were wrestling characters, great athletes. Uh, but as I started researching, yeah, the Don Owen story and uh, learning the role of Dutch Savage, especially in, you know, promoting in Washington, uh, it was just fascinating. Yeah, he uh, actually ended up being quite a friend to Gene Kaniski in their later years. And, uh, uh yeah, he is definitely worthy of a, a biography as well. And, and, and you know, you, you talk about like the, the Owens family. I mean, we, we mentioned Don Owen, but you know, when people talk about it, they, they always seem to talk a, a very highly and of how a reasonable man that Don Owen was, pretty straight up as far as, say, you know, in the world of booking, that's kind of a few and far between sort of scenario. But it was Elton Owen that, uh, you know, when people remember him, they, they don't quite remember him being this, uh, you know, sturdy leader. There was just a lot of things that they remember talking about with Elton. He was a bit of a character, I mean, without going into any uh, further detail uh, about it. But Elton, you know, when you compare the two brothers, there was definitely that difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of your older listeners might remember Billy Carter, brother to former President Jimmy. You know, I, I've talked to wrestlers who didn't put it in those words exactly, but who, who told stories that made uh, Elton come off as kind of a Billy Carter, I mean, a more uh, roguish kind of fellow. Um, I, I guess the business was really his to inherit, but um, didn't exactly turn out that way. He ran some towns, uh, and, you know, he was successful in his way. He had a bit of a background as a wrestler himself, but... Yeah, as you say, it was Don who really put uh, the promotion, at least on the map, during its last five decades. And uh, it was actually, yeah, it, it was in every way his imprint on the promotion. It's, it's interesting. I've talked to his uh, son, Barry, a couple of times, too. Barry made a, a pretty big contribution, I think, to wrestling in the Northwest. And uh, I, I think the word dynasty really does apply in this case. I mean, it was a a promotion much like the Von Erich promotion. Not so much to promote family members, but just, you know, in the way they ran the business, shared the business, uh, shared responsibilities. But you're absolutely right from uh, just about everybody I've talked to who knew Elton Owen. Uh, he was uh, mm, a more controversial sort of character and one that some guys would, would you know, tell jokes about. But, um, you know... Every family has its characters. Well, and the thing, too, is that, you know, you, we always remember Don and, and, and Elden Owen in, in regards to Portland history because it, of the more of the modern day and, and of the kayfabe era. But some, in the story, too, we got to remember that these guys' father, Herb Owen, was, was kind of the guy that spearheaded a, a little more consistency with uh, the Pacific Northwest in regards to pro wrestling because he really, you know, in the 20s was, was one of those guys that kind of got things kick-started, you know. And it's an interesting story about how that all came about, too, how the whole, the whole shebang got going uh, in, in Portland. I mean, you talked about the Farmer Burns era and stuff, but it really started to catch fire and became a little bit more consistent when, when, when Herb Owen made that step. Yeah, you know, it, it started slowly. It started small. I mean, he was working with other promoters. And, uh, of course, there's the controversial story, which I don't think anybody has figured out entirely as to how he ascended to, you know, becoming the top promoter in Oregon. There's the story of Ted Thai going to Australia. Uh, Herb Owen somehow finagling his way to uh, 
you know, being granted recognition as the guy in Portland by the uh, commissioners. Um, seems to be a lack of good, solid information, unless somebody's got something I don't know about. But, yeah, Herb uh, was certainly an interesting guy in his own right, uh, entirely ambitious. Um, he, I think, wanted to set something up for his sons, and uh, he certainly was successful in that regard. He did well during the Depression, um, and he brought his sons into the business, and uh, I think... Don especially was quite ready to take over in 1942, and he did. And the thing is, too, it wasn't only pro wrestling because they were also dabbling, and Herb was dabbling in getting some some boxing. I mean, they were bringing in some some pretty top name guys. I mean, uh, when they were doing the boxing promotion as well. I mean, during those early years, I mean, you hear talk of her bringing in like a boxer like like Jack Dempsey. So there was a little bit of that crossover too at that time. There was, yeah. And, you know, in those days, too, I I think wrestling did well to tie itself to boxing. I mean, wrestling in in many ways was, at least in many areas, was actually more popular than boxing. But, uh, well, I I think that association helped to legitimize wrestling to a lot of people. And, yeah, Herb was was, uh, certainly involved in that regard as well. I mean, he was, uh, you know, it was not a big market situation, but he was a successful boxing promoter as, as well as a wrestling promoter. And with success, too, uh, came the, the formation of what was the National Wrestling Alliance in the late 1940s. And one of those main promoters that was uh, that gets credit for being one of those uh, founding fathers of that original group, that cons- consortium of promoters. Well, well, Don was right into that, in the head of that as well, at, at the beginning stages of the National Wrestling Alliance. And that could prove you through the years to be very beneficial in regards to traveling champions and the like, and, and having these guys kind of work in, in, in some Patico, even in regards to maybe potential outlaw you know, territories coming in and all of that, you hear the stories about how united the NWA was, sometimes to their own detriment. But yes, uh, Don definitely uh, was one of those guys right at the, at the forefront uh, when, that, uh, when the National Wrestling Alliance came together. Yeah, I, I think some of that history has been uh, you know, written retroactively. I mean, he was not one of the founding promoters of the NWA, though... He was often billed as that. I, I don't know exactly how that rumor started, whether he uh, you know, chose to uh, market himself as a founding promoter, but it was actually a few years later that he was admitted to the uh, NWA in the early 50s. But yeah, as you say, he had access to all the champions from that point on, I mean, from Fez on, uh, and that certainly was big business, and uh, it really helped build up some of the contenders in his territory. One who really comes to mind is actually a wrestler I never saw in the ring. As you know, a lot of promoters used to tape over their old programs, but uh, Luther Lindsay was really, I think, legitimized when Luthez came out to Portland, and, uh, you know, Lindsay would... Uh, often battled to a draw against Fez, uh, absolutely being part of the NWA really meant something for a long, long time. In fact, just about to the end of the um, the Owen era in the early 1990s, it was a great move. And again, I don't know how the story came about that uh, Don was there from the beginning, but he certainly played a major role uh, in promoting the NWA for, for about well, four decades. 
Well, that's why it's nice to have gentlemen like yourself that go in, do the research, and kind of dispel some of the mythology that uh, sometimes, more than sometimes, can surround stories in the world of professional wrestling. That's what makes pro wrestling history such a kind of a complicated thing at times to weave through what was the kayfabe and what was the actual legitimate truth. And, and that is uh, definitely uh, the Owen family and, and Don is no exception to the rule in that instance. Well, no, that was the wrestling business for sure. Um, in fact, when I grew up, uh, to me, you know, Ivan Koloff was Russian. <laughs> um, you know, I, I took it at face value when I was a kid. And, um, you know, wrestling really thrived on that, uh, that kind of marketing, that kind of situation. Uh, but, yeah, the fact is, and I've got to say, Tim Hornbaker is just a wonderful source as to NWA history. I would recommend any of his books to any of your listeners. Um, and he's got a book especially outlining the history of the NWA. It's just a wonderful source of, of the early area of the uh, NWA and, and later decades as well. Can't recommend that enough. Speaking of something, you know, in regards to marketing and promotion, and, and definitely the Portland Territory was able to take advantage of it in, in the, its early infancy, and uh, definitely were able to bear fruit, was the advent of television and uh, the, the ability to uh, reach out to more of the potential viewers, thus getting people to come to the arenas or to these TV tapings initially to kind of push the product. I mean, television's impact on Portland was a, a great thing and was one of the earlier shows uh, around that TV TV circuit uh, in the earlier days of of the television. Well, yeah, the Owen promotion got on TV in the mid fifties. I mean, there were uh, promotions on for you know a decade or more before that, but uh, it certainly was one of the very successful uh, television promotions from its uh, earliest days on TV. Um, in in the book, I you know look at some of the national. Uh, television penetration that uh, wrestling from Chicago, for example, had in the 1940s and 50s, but uh, it was absolutely vital for local promotions to get on TV. Don Owen didn't seem to, you know, to, to have that on his radar at first, but um, I'm sure it didn't take him long after he got on TV and uh, it just spiked his success that, that he realized, yeah, good move. Um, and you know there were other promotions in the Northwest on TV in the fifties, uh, early sixties. Um, the uh, Harry Elliott promotion in Washington uh, had very good TV penetration, and then uh, All Star Wrestling in Vancouver actually uh, got on the air in a small way in the late sixty, I believe it was. There was a a program called The Manly Art of Mayhem, which was actually uh, kind of a satirical take a little bit on wrestling. Um, it would involve panelists talking about matches. They did a trial run. Um, All-Star Wrestling was on the air a few years later, but absolutely TV is uh, such a commodity. Wrestling was made for TV, and uh, I think we can see nowadays that promotions without TV have a very, very difficult time of uh, staying afloat. But uh, Owen, as you say, was one of the, uh, I think, masters of creating a good television show, and he oh, had killer ratings all through the region, and uh, that show lasted well over three decades. Uh, I just wish I had the option to, the opportunity to see more of it, but 
there is very little video footage surviving from, you know, the 50s and the 60s, unfortunately. And, you know, in the 1960s, uh, crowds got bigger. I mean, we're talking in the Pacific Northwest. They were, they were packing out shows at, at the Center Coliseum. But also one of the uh, staples of the Portland Circuit was a venue that opened up in 1961, and the Portland Memorial Coliseum. Now, there was uh, more than uh, just a few uh, standing room only crowds at that venue. Yep. Uh, I remember back in, was it the early 80s, people would talk about wrestling booming. Well, that's not the way it was. I mean, wrestling had been doing well for decades before that. And uh, even in the Northwest, in Seattle, in Portland, in Vancouver, yep, we're talking often full houses and in, in some of the bigger arenas even. Uh, just a great time to have lived through, I think, as a wrestling fan. Oh, and in that area, I mean, you you mentioned earlier the the NWA uh, All Star Wrestling promotion, uh, the the predecessor, uh, you know, of course, Big Time Wrestling, and that promotion started to become a force as well in the Pacific Northwest. Now, what sort of relationship uh, did did the Owen family have uh, with, with the company that was emerging, uh, the NWA All Star Wrestling, up in the Vancouver area, uh, with guys, you know, like you mentioned, Gene Kaniski, and, and another name that comes to play is Sander Kovacs. Yeah, um, I would say early on, it was just a matter of proximity, really, that uh, led to wrestlers traveling the whole circuit on both sides of the border. That, um, you know, by the 50s, especially when Harry Elliott was established in Washington, there were wrestlers working regularly in Canada, working Oregon, working Washington. Yeah, there was a, a very good relationship um, over the course of the 1960s. It got stronger, and then eventually, uh, in the late 60s, Don Owen became a partner in the Vancouver promotion with Kaniski and Sandor Kovacs. Uh, but even from the beginning, I mean, distances seemed greater than they do now. Now we think nothing of traveling 300 miles and uh, you know, it's almost to the next town. In those days, things were a little more complicated. Uh, it was not as much like, you know, one unified region as it would become later on. But uh, generally speaking, there was a pretty good relationship between what went on in Oregon, Washington, and up in British Columbia. A lot of trading of talent and no particular problems that I'm aware of, at least as far as the, the major promoters are concerned. You know, if somebody tried to step in and promote um, an outlaw organization. Well, that's something different. But as far as Owen um, and uh, the promoters uh, a little further north were concerned, it was it was usually a good situation. Mm-hmm. And they also another venue that that, that sprouted up that was actually uh, something that the Owen family bought was an old renovated bowling alley that became another one of those hot spot little venues, uh, the Portland Sports Arena. And then this was around towards the end of, of the late 1960s, too, where, where this came up. And, and there was many years where that venue was another go-to area for when people think about Portland wrestling. Yeah, um, it's just a fascinating story. I mean, in the book, I, I try to go through a little bit of the history of the buildings that Owen and others ran. But yeah, the sports arena was a converted bowling alley. It was um, kind of refurbished to accommodate about 3,000 uh, pretty rabid wrestling fans. And it certainly was a place that had a character of its own. Um, you know, there was a real intimacy, I think, in that situation. And it was just the perfect setting, I think, for Don Owen's TV show. And one of the reasons I think the show had such success for such a long time. Uh, that show, or rather that arena, uh, survived uh, 
until the end of the Owen era. He sold it later on, but I think it was just the perfect setting. I mean, it was not a major arena by any means, but maybe we could compare it a little bit to something like the ECW arena in Philadelphia. Oh, there I mean, we something go. that really stood out. I mean, it's not this nondescript studio. Studio wrestling was great, uh, at least when it was done right, but uh, there was just something about that Portland sports arena, I think, that said something. It, it said that we're not just another promotion. I mean, this is ours. Uh, this is the way we do it. Um, in the book, I mention uh, at least Buddy Rose's reaction as it has been reported when he you know, pulled into the Portland sports arena parking lot, saw what it was. I mean, he had been around. He knew major arenas, though he hadn't main evented yet. But you know, he got there, and I'm sure he saw. Well, this is a bowling alley, but uh, you know that was the right building for that promotion, and uh, I, I think it was on the back of that building that the TV show was what it was for so long. And uh, I only wish I could have gone there. And you know, there's there's certain things with nostalgia, of course, the in-ring action, but there's another thing that also draws people and gets their their memories going, and that's from these shows, the announcers. I mean, you got to give some credit to the announcers. We had a we had a great uh, bevy of them in the AWA in the 70, 60s, 70s, and 80s. But Portland had a couple of guys that really had a presence as well uh, in the form of uh, Harry Elliott and I, I'm hopefully I can get this uh, name right, Frank Bonema. Let's talk a little bit yes. about about Harry and, and Frank and their contribution to uh, getting uh, you know the TV pro, you know off the ground as well and, and keeping people interested to the action in the ring. I mean, the guys that make the call are just as important at times. Yeah, well, Harry Elliott was based up in Washington most of the time when he was running TV there. But as, as far as Frank Bonema goes, I mean, I've, I've, I've watched, you know, the footage that remains. And he was just a, a nice down-home, almost like a, you know, some announcers are absolutely right for their promotions. I think we could say that about Lance Russell in Memphis. 100%. I think we could say that about Frank Bonema in Portland as well. I mean, he just... Uh, he was somebody that the people there took to. Um, he did not insult the fans' intelligence. Uh, he was, I, I think, well-spoken, a little soft-spoken sometimes. Uh, but he was the right guy. I think you could say the same thing about Ron Morier up in Vancouver, too. I've talked to wrestlers who you know, were not too impressed by Ron Morier's um, soft-spokenness. Uh, maybe what they saw is a lack of commitment to the wrestling business other than showing up in the studio doing his show and then going on to something else. But again, he was the right guy for that situation, for that studio show. People took to him. And uh, it was really a major blow for both of those promotions when those announcers, Morier and Frank Bonema, passed away. Bonema was not very old. I think he was a little short of 50 uh, when he passed away. Uh, Don Koss and other uh, announcers uh, were very good, definitely. But, you know, I, I think anybody who grew up during that sports arena era uh, would remember Frank Bonham, that voice, the way he called matches. Nothing spectacular. He just uh, called the action as it was. And, uh, you know, he spoke to the people as a, uh, a down-home sort of, you know, as, as one of the fans. And I think people appreciated that. He was probably as much a part of the success of the promotion on TV as as the sports arena was. And uh, 
you know, I, I grew up in that era where we associated uh, certain announcers with certain territories. And, uh, you know, we're living in a different age now for sure. But uh, he was the right guy, definitely, in Portland. We're talking with Stephen Verrier. He's the author of Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, a History 1883 to the Present. And I'm going to bring back in the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy, uh, to bring in some more questions. Mike, uh, I had you back uh, for a while. I, I got to flip the mic back and turn it over to you, my friend. Uh, you have more questions for Stephen today. Yes, I do. Um, I would like to kind of touch on your book, as we have said a couple of times now, it does go up into present time around 2017 and mm-hmm. professional wrestling here in Texas, as well as a lot of other territories, the indie scene is seeing a resurgence and it is taking, we have the big market, you know, WWE for television, but the indie scene is just becoming huge again. And a lot of stars are coming out of the indie scene. I'd like to talk a little bit about the independent scene in Pacific Northwest because you've got DOA wrestling, you've got West Coast Wrestling Connection, you've got Defy in Seattle, uh, you go up into Canada, you've got ECCW, you've got All-Star up there. The indie scene in Pacific Northwest right now is probably like hotter than it's been in a long time. What were some of the things you found out about the indie scene? Who were some of the guys that you got to uh, speak with currently about uh, current product? Yeah, well, first of all, I've got to say I'm a newcomer here in the Northwest, relatively. Again, we're talking a few years. And for a long time, I lived definitely far from this region, often in other countries. So that was really an area I needed to brush up on. Again, Vance, Nevada was an excellent source. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I did talk to the promoters. I talked to Jeff Manning uh, in Portland, to uh, to Michelle Starr and Scotty Mack up in Vancouver. Uh, of course, Matt Farmer. I just tried to uh, get a sense of the pulse of um, independent wrestling in this part of the country. And I, I've got to say, some people are doing amazing things. I mean, it's it's a shame that it's so hard to get on television nowadays. Um, the West Coast Wrestling Connection is on TV. They're doing a great job Saturday nights. Uh, but, but for some of these other promoters, and I, I, I've got to say Michelle Starr, particularly up in Vancouver, what he's done for a generation is amazing. Um, uh, Vance Nevada uh, told me once, I don't remember his words exactly, but he really credits Michelle Starr with being the reason for a generation of wrestling in in British Columbia, and I think that is absolutely true. I mean, the, the sacrifices these guys have made uh, is just astounding. And um, fans, you know, you, we don't get thousands of fans to the independent shows, but there is a rabid audience. People recognize the hard work. Uh, I, I went to a show uh, not long ago. Um, the promotion was, uh, uh, my goodness, Northwest Pro Wrestling. And they had a perfect setting. It was a little, like a community, I don't even know how to describe it, but it had a balcony. It was just an old-time entertainment center and just a wonderful show. Uh, Ken Hamlin was, was involved. He was uh, doing the ring announcing. Fans were just eating it up. The wrestlers were working so hard. Uh, just, just a wonderful effort. So... You know, you can say the same thing probably about uh, at least a dozen promotions in this part of the country. I don't get out to as many shows as I would like to. I will get out to All-Star Wrestling um, 
this Saturday. I've, I've, I've seen what they do a little bit. It's just amazing. I mean, the way people react, you know, they don't want to sit in front of their television set and see the same thing they saw last week. You know, they don't want to see two hours of talk and a little bit of wrestling. You know, they want to see the action. They want to see hungry wrestlers. And there are a lot of opportunities in this part of the country to do just that. We're talking about Portland wrestling. We talk about Dono and, and all that. There were many incarnations of Portland wrestling after Don Owen. Um, I know right off the top of my head, uh, the Kafori's had a version of Portland wrestling. Frank Culbertson was a promoter of Portland wrestling for a few years. That's when I started going up up there and getting to know a lot of the guys. And as well, they had Portland wrestling uncut just a few years ago. Can we talk a little bit about Portland wrestling after the uh, Don Owen era? Because I know in your book, you touch on it a little bit, but are there some things you found out? Like, just, There were so many incarnations of them. I think Frank Culbertson probably was one of the more successful ones. I might be wrong on that, if you want to correct me there. But what were some of the problems that these next incarnations of Portland wrestling had? Because a lot of them still had the ties to the area. And I know that Piper, Roddy Piper, and a few of the other guys from the old Portland wrestling, Grappler, Ed Moretti, they would contribute to these later versions of Portland wrestling. But what were some of the uh, just the problems that wouldn't allow these to be as successful or at least uh, part as successful as uh, the Don Owen times? Yeah, I think in part it is, you know, I, th- I think we can attribute those problems partly to the same problems that drove Don Owen out of business. I mean, things changed. Uh, the fans expected to see certain things on television. They expected to uh, just, I don't want to say they expected a certain level of wrestler because there were great guys on the independent scene, guys who stayed in the Northwest, but they just expected to see in many ways uh, a bit of a reflection of what they saw on the national television shows. So it was awfully difficult. You mentioned some promotions that did have some local television. Um, But, you know, by that time, it was awfully difficult for anybody to to promote independently, uh, you know, given what was going on in the business, the way that, you know, that pie was just getting eaten up by the big guys. So it was very, very difficult. But I I think, too, um, the fact that some promotions continued to call themselves Portland Wrestling was really a testament to what Don Owen had uh, accomplished over the course of, over the course of half a century and the name meant something uh, there were many 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 incarnations of portland wrestling afterward you mentioned uh, the culbertson promotion um, i think a lot of people know the the legal problems that led to the end of that but um, it was a difficult era, but th- there were some promotions that definitely uh, made a good go of it. But uh, again, the game had changed, and uh, it was very, very, very difficult to compete. You know, come the the mid to late nineties, and certainly uh, into the twenty first century. One thing we haven't talked about yet too much. You do t- discuss in your book a little bit. Um, Ed Moretti was a big part of this fight. Was the uh, Boxing, the athletic commission in Oregon was a major problem for the wrestling scene. Um, at one point, there was a lot of legal issues. What are some of the things you found out about the athletic commission fight in Oregon? Well, 
um, this played out in certain other areas of the country as well. But, you know, there were a group of commission members who just wanted to treat wrestling as a combat sport. So they imposed some pretty serious restrictions. They made it difficult for promotions to do some of the things they had done in the past. Um, you know, there was drug testing imposed. Um, you know, there were restrictions as to um, blading. Um, you know, you had to have ambulances uh, on hand. Just a, a number of things that made it very difficult for the smaller promotions to, to compete. And uh, a lot of them just went out of business as a result. Even the, the big promotions did not come to Oregon for a long time because of the drug testing uh, requirement imposed by um, the commission, but you mentioned Moretti again, and uh, just a, a fascinating story, I think. He served on the commission. Uh, his goal was to uh, you know, give a voice to the wrestling promotions, but through my conversations with him, it seems absolutely clear that he was considered the enemy by um, some people in the wrestling business. He, I think, gave it his very best effort, did exactly what he could do, and uh, I think had some accomplishments to be proud of. But um, you know, the commissioners until the early 2000s were just making it very, very, very difficult for the smaller promotions to make a go of anything. I mean, it's, it's amazing that some promotions did as well as they did, given the situation. Yeah, you mentioned WWE. I believe they didn't even, they weren't in Oregon for, oh God, it was a good 10, 15 years, I believe, before they came back. It was a good decade, that's right. Um, you know, and WCW as well. Um, they just, they were not keen on drug testing at that time. Uh, the promotion, or rather the, the, the commission was taking its job seriously, but, um, well, you know, unless you had a ton of money, uh, you weren't going to throw it away to try to compete against the commission. So uh, even the WWF, as you say, stayed out of Oregon for, for a good decade. Now, one other name I'd like to ask you about, uh, as far as research goes, you haven't mentioned this one. Um, there's a gentleman, he was a 20-some years, he ran a bulls in, in the uh, the Oregon area. It was called Ring Around the Northwest. Mike Rogers is a major historian of the uh, Portland area. Did you have a chance to talk with Mike at all? Was he any like influence or any help with uh, your, your book? Uh, yeah, I, I did consult Mike a number of times, and you know, I, I regret that I never read his newsletter. You know, in the past, I did not live in the region, but it would have been a wonderful resource. But I made a point of, of uh, asking questions to Mike. Um, he was one of the readers of my manuscript, and he made some some very good suggestions. Just a, a very very um, friendly guy who is quite willing to share his knowledge. Now, you've got an upcoming, we're, we're coming to the end of our hour here. We've got a little bit of time left. I want to give you a chance to talk about your upcoming project. Your follow-up to this book is going to be, it's a biography of Gene Kaniski, one of probably the more colorful uh, characters in the wrestling industry. Where did that book come from? Did that stem from your research here through the uh, Pacific Northwest book? Yeah, I think it did. I, I really love to watch him when, to me, he was a wrestling character you know, a few decades ago, but as I, as I researched the history book, I, I came to realize that Kaniski was a lot more than what I had seen on TV. So, you know, I just started uh, 
getting in touch with people. I, I, I found out he was not originally from Edmonton, but from a small village in that part of Canada. So first thing I did was get in touch with a historian there who knew the Kaniski family. I talked to many Kaniski relatives, and, and soon I realized, man, I mean, this is somebody whose life has to be documented. So uh, the Kaniski biography is actually about a third longer than the history book. I, I don't know exactly what the timeline is. It's in the publisher's hands now, but you know, I'm hoping by fall or so that that book will be out, but it was a lot of fun to research. And uh, in this case, I, I had to you know, break a lot of the ground and uh, contact a lot of people. I can't even estimate how many calls I made. I went to Alberta, talked to people who knew Jean. Uh, so in this case, I'm more on my own. As far as the history book is concerned, there were people I had to contact, people who knew a lot more than I do about the history of wrestling in this region. But as far as the Kaniski thing is concerned, I tried to uncover as much as I could. And I think the result is something that wrestling fans will enjoy, but anybody who likes a good biography. I mean, Kaniski was just an amazing guy who had a lot more sides to him than I think people would realize. Yeah, what has the reaction been to the history book and uh, reaction to the announcement of your upcoming Kaniski book? Because you said you're not, you're a fan, but these books are not meant for wrestling fans in general. You, these are books to anybody. And what's the reaction been as far as like audience wise, what kind of reviews have you gotten? Because it seems like wrestling would be a specific you're looking for the wrestling fan. Well, you know, I'm a fan, but I know how to study up. Um, so I, you know, I can go through huge amounts of material pretty quickly. I can distill, I can synthesize, I can talk to people, I can track people down. So, you know, I, I don't have a 40-year background as, um, you know, a wrestling researcher. But as far as other kinds of research are concerned, I, I do have certain skills, and I'm, I'm very eager to apply those in this field. So I, I, I make sure I'm accurate, um, and I am absolutely determined. And I think people are quite willing to share with me because they realize that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not fooling around with this. I'm doing the best that I possibly can. And uh, you know, I, I do think there is some crossover in terms of tools or skills. So, um, you know, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. But as far as the Kaniski book is concerned, I knew Kaniski as a wrestler. Um, I was, uh, you know, I'm not a fan who knows every little detail of wrestling. I don't spend, you know, 15 hours a day researching wrestling, but I try to you know, connect what goes on in wrestling to the bigger picture. As far as the Kaniski book is concerned, I think there is plenty there that will appeal to wrestling fans. But again, you know, I, I do want to have something to say to people who are not necessarily wrestling fans as well. I mean, I, I appreciate both audiences. Well, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, I'm going to pass it over to you uh, if you have some more questions. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm going to get in uh, one more question here uh, before uh, we get to uh, saying our goodbyes uh, today. Uh, we didn't get a chance to mention it in the 1980s. The you know around 83, 84, 85, 
Portland was still putting up some pretty decent crowds, but there was, uh, I guess, uh, a shadow that was starting to be cast over the pro wrestling business, and that was uh, Vince McMahon and his uh, attempt successfully to uh, make pro wrestling not just a territory thing, but to make it a national product. And a lot of stuff that uh, Vince did was a lot of scorched earth through the territories and, and taking over uh, some certain parts uh, that were major pro wrestling hubs for, for other promoters. And uh, Portland had a battle on its hands for a while, and they seemingly were holding their own. I mean, they had the connection with the NWA, and they were putting still putting on big shows, super cards for a while, but McMahon, that threat, though, breathing down their neck, was very real and very evident at that time. Oh, yeah, Be- between the WWF and the commission. I mean, it, it was not an easy undertaking, but, you know, McMahon started picking the apples, you could say. I mean, you know, luring away wrestlers. It was absolutely a, a challenge. Um, but as, as far as Portland is concerned, I, I think the fans, they, they liked what they had. They did want something different. They didn't want a, a pale reflection uh, of what they saw you know, on the national television shows. So, again, in the book, I sort of contrast the approach that the Owens took to preserving their business and what went on in Vancouver when El Tomko seemed... Uh, intent on trying to replicate what Vince McMahon was doing, and of course he couldn't do it at all. You know, he did it right down to establishing his character based on Sergeant Slaughter. At least that certainly seems to be the case. Uh, you know, Vancouver went down a few years before Portland did, or before Don Owen did, but uh, they took very, very different approaches. But in Portland, I think Don and Barry Owen, you know, they they were up for a fight. Uh, they tried to keep that homegrown flavor of the program. Uh, they gave it a very good shot, but uh, by the early 1990s, you know, when the WWF was, you know, paying for television spots, well, you know, that was it, game over. But uh, they, I think, stayed true to what had put them in such a good position. Mm-hmm. Now, as we uh, wrap up today, uh, do you have anything else that you would like to share with the, the, the listeners here, uh, Mr. Verrier, about the books or anything that you have upcoming? We're going to give you the floor here and uh, let you uh, speak your mind just one more time before we head out. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And again, to anybody out there who's involved in independent wrestling, God bless you. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a calling for some people, and it's amazing the sacrifices that hungry wrestlers and, you know, those putting their money on the line make. And uh, we may not go back to what we had decades ago, but, uh, you know, there definitely is more to wrestling than what people see on TV Monday nights, and that's a good thing. And, and to anybody not involved in the business, to fans, please get out and support these people. Um, you know, it's just amazing. We owe so much to those who keep alive some of what we used to take for granted. And, uh, you know, I, I hope the book, uh, you know, reflects some of what made wrestling special in the past and, and some of what wrestling can be again. Uh, it's difficult without TV, but uh, there's a lot going on and uh, we need to support it. 
that's a great way to finish up the interview. I want to thank you, uh, Stephen Verrier. The, the book is wonderful. Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, a history 1883 to the present. Uh, you can, you're very much, uh, the door is open for any future appearances, whether to talk about the Kaniski book or even to do a, another deep dive into some Portland history. It's a wonderful uh, little uh, piece of uh, history in this wonderful territory system of uh, pro wrestling back in the day and, and beyond. And I, I thank you for taking the time and for putting together this book. Well, Glenn, I thank you, and uh, I would love to do this again. And, and Michael, a pleasure. Uh, you guys do a great job, and I'm looking forward to listening to your shows for a long time to come. Thank you so much. For the Grizzled Vet, Mike thank McCurdy you. and Stephen Verrier, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories.